study through Matthew chapter 14. We'll be in verses 22 to 36 today. You ever go through a difficult season in your life, maybe the loss of a loved one, a friend, a family member, maybe uh, an illness, maybe a, a terminal illness. You ever walk through a hardship and feel like God's not there? Like, where is he? I felt like he was here a moment ago, but now he's almost left me. Now he's almost abandoned me and he's allowing me to walk through this trial alone. God, where are you? And so often when we walk through hardships, we can ask that same question, God, where are you? I don't see you. In this story this morning, we're going to look at the disciples in this situation that Jesus puts them in. He actually leads them into a storm and they're all alone. They're all alone for a time period, but we'll see later on in this story, through this storm, Jesus is going to meet them literally right where they're at. So often, such is the case for us, that in the midst of storms, Jesus meets us right where we're at. Which brings me to the title of this teaching, Meeting Jesus in the Storm. Meeting Jesus in the Storm. So, we're going to continue... through Matthew chapter 14, like I said, uh, last week, remember, Jesus just found out that his dear cousin, John the Baptist, was beheaded, so he departs, he goes to get away. We talked about how there were probably two reasons why he departed, why he wanted to get alone. First of all, Herod may have wanted to kill Jesus as well. Second of all, it was his cousin. And he says in Matthew um, earlier in the gospel that John the Baptist was the greatest man ever born from a woman. So Jesus, though he goes to get some solitude, though he goes to be alone for a while, we see that he takes his disciples with him on a boat and he leads the disciples into this group, this multitude of needy people. Now remember, Jesus told them, hey, depart with me, let's go get some rest. So the disciples were under the assumption that they were going away with Jesus to get some vacay time, to chill, to relax a little bit. And Jesus, he leads them right to this multitude after Jesus heals them and ministers the word of God to them. The disciples say, hey, let's send them away so that they can get some food. And Jesus said, what? No, you feed them. You do something about the situation. And we talked about how we're called not only to be fed by the word of God, but we're called to feed others. And the title of last week's teaching was um, purposed in ministry despite weariness because the disciples were weary. So context is crucial. Jesus and the disciples just got done feeding these 5,000 people. Now look what happens in Matthew chapter 14, verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. So Jesus, 
He makes the disciples get into the boat, probably communicated to him, hey guys, it's time to go. You're going to get in the boat. You're going to go before me to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. But Jesus, he's not going with them right now. He's sending them off alone. So often that is the case in our walk of faith. See, sometimes, just like the disciples were, they were right with Jesus. They were doing life with Jesus. They were just engaging in ministry with Jesus. And the last time they were on the boat, they were with Jesus. But now they're all alone. See, sometimes Jesus has to take us from being babes in the faith to being more mature in our faith. And just as a mama bird pushes her baby bird out of the nest, so too Jesus has to do that with us sometimes. See, we're comfortable getting treated like babies. We like it. We want to be taken care of. We want to be nurtured by Jesus. And many of us in the beginning of our walk with the Lord, that's how we felt. Like Jesus was always there. He was always speaking to me. He was always answering these prayers. He made himself so known, almost tangible. He was babying you. And honestly, when I was uh, early on in my Christian walk, I would literally pray to God, God, treat me like a baby. I would ask God to treat me like a baby because I didn't think that I was ready to go through trials. I didn't think that I was ready to go through storms. I honestly felt that if my life got too difficult, I may not continue to follow the Lord. I was fresh in the faith. I didn't really know everything about the things of God. So I would say, God, treat me like a baby. Until later on in life, I realized that God can't just treat me like a baby all the time because he's trying to mature me. He's trying to transform me into the image of his perfect son. And sometimes that takes him stepping back. Sometimes that takes him sending me out almost as if I was alone. Sometimes that takes him making me feel like or us feel like we're Where is God? He sent me out on this boat in this storm alone. Where is he? I'm sure that's what the disciples are thinking in a portion of this story. But we know the Lord will never leave us nor forsake us. And he has a purpose and a reason for sending us out alone, just as he does with these disciples. Now, look what it says there in verse 22. He made the disciples, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. Okay. How he made him, I'm not, how he made them, I'm not really sure, but he probably communicated to them, right? He probably didn't grab them and force them in the boat. He probably communicated and said, Hey guys, you need to get in the boat. We're going to go to the other side. I'm sending you before me to get to the other side, which is really important. The implications there are that the disciples will certainly get to the other side, regardless of how difficult their circumstances get, how Regardless of how treacherous this storm becomes right from the bat. Hey, go before me to the other side. They're going to get there regardless of what happens, which is important for later in the text. So look what he does here. That last part of verse 22, it says he sent the multitudes away. The disciples, when they tried to send the multitudes away, what did they say? 
What Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. Don't send them away. You feed them. You take care of the situation. But now Jesus is sending the multitudes away. See, we need to let Jesus send the multitudes away. We need to let Jesus be the one that sends people away. I'm not going to walk through the church and saying, hey, you need to go. I don't like what you're wearing. I don't like how you smell. I don't like how you look. You need to get I'm going to send you away. No, we can't be the ones that send the people away. It has to be Jesus. What do I mean? Well, think about the context of this church. In the last couple of years, there have been many that have come and gone, right? There have been many that have left the church. There have been many new people that have come to the church. Now, I'm not going to go chase every person down that has left this church and say, hey, you need to come to our church. As much as I want this church to be the biggest and the healthiest church here on the mountain, I'm not going to go chase the people that have left down because there's a truth in scripture that we see here that sometimes Jesus sends people away. Sometimes Jesus sends people to other churches. Sometimes he sends them off to different places and we have to be okay with that. But we also have to recognize as we see here in scripture that it's his job to send people. It's his job to bring people and it's not our job to send the people away. Now we see here this story is in all four Gospels, okay, as we discussed last week. And we see that there's a specific reason why Jesus is sending this multitude away. And if you look at John chapter 6, the same story, Jesus has a reason for why he's sending them away. In John chapter 6, verse 15, says, Therefore... When Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. The people he's referring to are the multitude. They're trying to take him and force him to be king. Now we know eternally, spiritually, Jesus is indeed king. But that wasn't the purpose of his ministry in his first coming. He came as the suffering servant. In his second coming, he'd come as the conquering king. What's the problem here? The people are jumping the gun. They're trying to make Jesus what they think he's supposed to be, but not who he came to be. He came as the suffering servant. Second coming, he'll come as the conquering king. It wasn't his time yet to take over Rome and rule and reign on the earth. But the people, they're under the impression that Jesus, he's going to be like David. We need to put him in the position as king. So... Jesus, perceiving what they were trying to do, perceiving that they were trying to make his ministry about something that it wasn't supposed to be, he sends them away and he departs to get some needed solitude. And that's exactly what happens if you look at Matthew chapter 14, verse 23. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on a mountain by himself to pray. Now, when evening came, he was alone there. So 
Let's paint the picture in our minds. We have Jesus. He goes up on a mountain to pray. Now the disciples, the next verse says, they'll be in the sea, the center of the Sea of Galilee, and they're being tossed to and fro by this storm. Okay. So Jesus can probably see the disciples as they're going through this storm. And it says that he's praying. So what is Jesus praying for? We don't know. The text doesn't tell us what he's praying for, but we can get an idea about what he would be praying for when we look at the story and consider what's happening. Now, Jesus, he was just teaching in power in Matthew chapter 13. Now his cousin dies in the beginning of Matthew 14. Now this multitude is in need. He preaches, he heals. Not only that, he feeds them. He's probably pretty weary. Remember, he's fully God, but he's also fully man. So he goes, as he so often does, to get some solitude, to get alone with who? With God, to pray. Why? Because he knows where his power comes from. He knows that in order for him to continue on to the ministry that God's called him to, he has to continue to seek God in prayer for strength, for power to endure what's to come. Now... Looking at the text, as he's on this mountain and the disciples are in this storm, maybe he's looking at the disciples. Text doesn't tell us for sure, but he's probably praying for them. Look what happens in verse 24. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. So again, disciples in the middle of a storm, tossed to and fro by this treacherous storm jesus he's on a mountain praying maybe he's praying for them regardless of whether or not jesus is praying for them in this specific setting we know that there's a truth in scripture that jesus does in fact pray for us and he prays for us as we go through storms which brings me to the first of five points jesus prays for us in the storm Jesus prays for us in the storm. It's Romans chapter 8 verse 34. It says he makes intercession for us. He stands at the right hand of the father and he intercedes on our behalf. He literally, Jesus literally prays for us. He knows exactly what we're going through. He watches us as God and he prays for us in our struggle. See, just because we don't always see Jesus in the storm, first of all, doesn't mean that he's not in the storm. And second of all, it doesn't mean that he doesn't intimately care and he's not intimately involved in the storm. He's praying for us to the Father as we go through our storms in life, as we go through our struggles. Now, this is kind of interesting when you look at this. Remember, The disciples are simply doing what Jesus said. Jesus made them get in the boat and said, hey, go before me, get across to the other side. So they're just simply being obedient to what Jesus told them to do only to find themselves in a storm. So often when we face storms, when we face trials, when we face tribulations, our immediate thought is, God, what did I do wrong? 
God, did I disobey you somehow, some way? Did I do something wrong? Are you offended with me and how I'm living my life? Why did you allow this thing to happen to me? What did I do wrong? But that's simply not always the case. Yes, the Lord disciplines us, but we see here in scripture, the disciples weren't doing anything wrong. They were simply being obedient to what Jesus told them to do. And now they're in a storm. Now these difficulties are happening, not because of their disobedience, but it connects to their obedience. So why would Jesus lead the disciples in a storm after they're being obedient? I thought there's blessings attached to obedience. How is this storm a blessing for obedience? So often God, because he's a loving father, he puts us through storms to mature us, to grow us. Not because he's mad at us, but because he loves us. Peter says it like this in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. He says... But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. What? That's not that encouraging. Well, yes, it is when we understand God's heart. Why would he allow us to go through suffering? The answer is right there. To perfect us, to establish us, to strengthen us. God uses suffering to mature us. He uses suffering to grow us. And that's what he's doing with the disciples. He's trying to take them from being babes in faith to a more mature level of faith. He's actually trying to grow their faith. And we'll see that it works later on in this text. Look back at Matthew chapter 14, verse 25. It says, Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. Jesus literally comes to them while they're in the midst of this storm. Which brings me to the second point. Jesus visits us in the storm. Jesus visits us in the storm. See, the disciples were likely longing to get to Jesus, right? They're being tossed to and fro by this storm. The last time we see that they were in a storm, they thought they were going to die. That time Jesus was with him, but he was sleeping, okay? But we see here the disciples, they're probably, hey, I want to get to Jesus because in Jesus I feel safe, I feel comforted. But Jesus was longing to get to the disciples even more so than the disciples were longing to get to him and he comes and he visits them in the midst of their storm. See, Jesus, he has a special way of showing up and meeting us where we're at when we're facing our greatest trials. Now that doesn't 
always mean that he answers our prayer and he changes the storm and the storm stops and we're out of our difficult circumstance or we're out of our hardship or he takes us from it. But he has a really creative, a very powerful, a very interesting way of letting us know that he's there with us. That, hey, I know you're what you're going through and I know you don't completely understand it, but you can rest assured on one thing and one thing alone that I'm here with you and I'm going to visit you in your time of trial. I might not do everything that you think that you need, but I will let you know that I'm in this thing with you. Now, when Elizabeth and I lost her mom last spring, the Lord did some interesting things. Now you look at something like that, a great godly woman, just, uh, she was a saint, amazing, amazing woman of God. And we find out that she's terminally ill, that she has brain tumors and a lung cancer and cancer spreading through her body. And, um, we know that time's probably short, but we're still resting on a potential miracle. Now, we were down in Costa Mesa at Pastor Chetlow's house with him and Mama Lo when we got the call. One of her brothers called us and said, hey, uh, mom just met with one of the doctors today and said she has two months to live. And we're like, man, why would God do this? But at the same time, we found that information out in a very comfortable setting. See, we found out where we had people that we looked up to, people that had mentored us and people that had gone through very similar things. Right off the bat, we were able to receive counsel from Pastor Chet and Andrea, and they were able to comfort us in that time period. So despite the fact that we hear about this tragic situation, God's like, hey, I got you and I'm going to allow you to find out this news when you're surrounded by people that can help you through this situation. Now, the very next day, I needed to drop Elizabeth off at LAX. She had a wedding she was going to in Omaha that she was actually in. And after I dropped her off about an hour later, I get a call from her brother again and said, hey, we just met with another doctor. This guy's like the, the real professional. And he says she's got two weeks max. And I'm like, God, why are you, Elizabeth is on a plane. Why am I finding this out now? We could have, if we found out yesterday or whatever, we could have rearranged plans and had her sent to Florida instead of being on her way to Omaha. So I text her and she texts me back when she lands in Denver and I tell her, and it was a, hey, we need to get you another flight to Florida. Now, it was interesting. It didn't cost us any money to change the flight from Denver to Omaha to get it um, redirected so that she could get a flight from Denver to Florida. It didn't cost anything. Now, you can look at that and you're like, oh, big deal. But I'm looking at that and I'm seeing the sovereignty of God in it. Had we had found out the day before, then we would have paid all this extra money for extra tickets and all this different, all these different things. But God knew and he was allowing us to find out more information and more information when we needed to hear it. And it was this really cool thing of God showing us that, hey, despite this tragedy, I'm here with you. I'm visiting you. I'm sovereign over this thing. And though you may not understand it and though you may not agree with it, I'm going to let you know that I'm here with you. The Lord so graciously 
visits us in the storm as he does with these disciples. Look what happens. Matthew chapter 14, verse 26. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled saying, it is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. See, they don't realize Jesus is visiting them. They think they see this figure and they look at it and they're covered in fear and they go, it's a ghost. See, so often God is right in the trial with us and we just can't see him. Or we're in the storm and we think what we see is a ghost or even the enemy, but it's really Jesus. We just have to look a little closer. So often we face trials in our life and we're like, man, spiritual warfare, the enemy's out to get me, yada, 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 the devil, like what is he, what does he want to do with me? And sometimes that is true, but other times if we look a little bit closer, we'll see that it's Jesus, that he's the one that's coming to visit us in the storm. Sometimes we might think like the it's a ghost, it's the enemy, but in all reality, in this story, it's Jesus himself. Look what happens, verse 27. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, be of good cheer. It is I do not be afraid. In the midst of the storm, Jesus speaks to them, which brings me to the third point. Jesus speaks to us in the storm. Jesus speaks to us in the storm. Why does Jesus speak to us in the storms? He wants to turn our fear into cheer. That's what he's doing. He says, be of good cheer. I know you have fear, but I want you to be of good cheer. I want you to have joy in the midst of the storm. And that's what James tells us in James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. He says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Those things seem to contradict each other. Why would I have joy in a trial? Why would I have joy when I'm going through something extremely difficult? Well, what James is telling us is it's not that we have joy because of the trial. We have joy in the trial because of what God is doing. God is doing something in it. He's not just allowing this storm to happen for no reason. He's allowing the storm to happen because he's trying to perfect us. He's trying to mature us and grow us. There's a purpose for the trial. Look what he says to them. He says to them, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. They're likely terrified. Not only are they in a storm that's wreaking havoc on their boat, they think they see a ghost. So these disciples, they are scared, right? That's why he says, be a good cheer. Do not be afraid. What makes us afraid? Why do we fear? Why do we experience that feeling of fear? Think about it. Some of you might be afraid of spiders. There's one under your chair. No, I'm kidding. Some of you might be afraid of snakes. Some of you might be afraid that something might happen to one of your kids or one of your loved ones. When you look at fear generally, the reason why we're afraid of things, we're afraid when there's circumstances that 
are outside of our control. When there's things that can happen to us that we can't do anything about. So this morning, I went on a run, and it was like a Halloween run. I don't know what that means. It was eerie, okay? It was, it was scary, okay? There was, it was foggy outside. Anybody come from Green Valley this morning? Was it all foggy when you came? Yeah, right? And not only that, there was wind blowing and all the leaves are moving, so it's like you can't see anything. And then these, this wind's making all these kinds of noises. The leaves are blowing, so I start running and I'm like, dude, this is like, I don't like this at all. And then I feel like I heard something in the bushes. So I, my run didn't last very long this morning. I turned around real quick and I was like, "Mm, maybe this isn't the right time to be running. What was I scared of? Now I have this thing with mountain lions, okay? Um, Coyotes, bears, no big deal. We've chased off bears, coyotes, not really afraid of coyotes, but mountain lions, what are you going to do? If you encounter a mountain lion, if that thing wants to eat you, you're done, right? So I have this fear that while I'm running, a mountain lion is going to get me. And this is, this is rational. Okay. Follow me. <laughs> Two, uh, three months ago, probably I was running in my neighborhood and I'll always like put one of my headphones in and one out just so I can maybe hear it coming and maybe I could do something. I don't know what I'll do so I can hear it coming. So I have the one earphone out, the one in, and I'm running because I'm always by myself. So if something happens, I'm done, right? So I'm running and I don't hear anything, but all of a sudden I feel this bam on the back of my legs, like so hard. I almost fall down and I see a flash of goldish tan. I'm done. I'm getting eaten by a mountain lion. I know it. Great. Of course. My greatest fear, it's happening. I turn around and it's a golden retriever. And he was just like, I don't know, he might have been one years old and he was just like trying to play with me. He literally nailed the back of my legs. I thought I was, I turned around, the the owner comes out. He's like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm like, it's not a big deal. I thought I was just going to die. And it's, it's just a golden retriever. Why was I so afraid? Because if that was a mountain lion, there's nothing I could do about it. If that thing wanted to get me, it could get me. And that's why we become afraid of things because they're outside of our control. But what does the word of God tell us? The word of God says that perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love casts out fear. Who's the holder of perfect love? It's no, none other than God himself. Now, what are the, what does that really mean? Now, If God is my father and he's in control of all things and he loves me, nothing's going to happen to me apart from his will. Even if things are devastating to me, even if things are tragic to me, God's sovereign. And though I might not have control of what happens to me, I might not have control of my circumstances. He does. And even if something happens that I don't agree with or that hurts me, God is allowing it to happen for a specific reason. He's sovereign over that and he loves me intimately. He loves me dearly. So perfect love casts out fear. When I understand that my heavenly father is in control and I grasp how much he loves me, what do I really need to be afraid of? I'm a work in progress. One day I will not be afraid of mountain lions. Matthew chapter 14, verse 28 
And Peter answered him and said, Lord, it is you. Command me to come to you on the water. So Peter, he sees the Lord and he recognizes that the safest place in the storm is with Jesus. See, all the other disciples, they're on the boat and they're content being on the boat. It doesn't say that any of the other disciples asked to come to Jesus. Peter was the only one. Why? Because he recognizes the safest place I can be in the midst of a storm, in the midst of a trial, is with Jesus. But what Peter does, I think, is is awesome, other than walking on water. He he waits for the Lord. And he waits for the Lord to command him. He says, Lord, if it's you, command me to come there. And if you command me to come to you, I'll come to you. And look what happens in the next verse. Verse 29. So he said, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. See, Peter, he waited for the Lord to direct him to come. And as soon as the Lord spoke his word, the word of God, Jesus' words are the word of God. As soon as he spoke the word of God, what did Peter do? He immediately responded. And that's what we're all called to do. When Jesus directs us, when he says come, or he says go, or he tells us anything, immediately we're called to respond to his words. Now, Peter, he responds to the words of Jesus by doing what? By taking a step of faith. He had to stay, take a step of faith to get out of the boat. If we want to walk on water, we got to be willing to get out of the boat. We got to be willing to take a step of faith. Now, I'm not saying, hey, guys, let's go try to walk on water. I'm just talking about faith in general. The boat is the representation of the comfort zone. So often we find ourselves okay with just being on the boat. We find ourselves content and comfortable where we're at. But sometimes Jesus is asking us to do something more than just be comfortable and content where we're at. Sometimes he's asking us to take a step of faith and be vulnerable. Now think about that. Peter, it's not like he had experience walking on water. This is something he had never done before. But he hears the word of God come and he responds to it. He does something that seems impossible and God allows the impossible to be done in Peter. So Peter, he had to have faith to get off the boat and take this step of faith. But what we see in this story later on is that Peter, he didn't have perfect faith. He didn't have complete faith. Jesus later, he's going to rebuke him for his lack of faith when he starts sinking. See, Peter, he had faith and doubt at the same time. Faith is not the absence of doubt. Faith is stepping out in the midst of your doubt. Even when you're not sure, even when you're uncertain, I don't know how this whole thing's going to pan out, but God said, come and I'm going to do it. I might sink. I might swim. I might walk on water. Who knows what's going to happen? But God said, go. God said, come and I'm going to come. He takes a step even in the midst of doubt. Look what happens. Verse 30. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. 
and beginning to sink, he cried out saying, Lord, save me. What happened? He lost focus. When we focus on the trials, when we focus on the storms, when we focus on the circumstances that we can't control and we stop focusing on Jesus, inevitably we're going to sink. It's exactly what happens to Peter. Then what do we do? We focus on Jesus. The author of Hebrews tells us, says it like this in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. He says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. If we focus on Jesus, we'll stay afloat. And look what Peter does. He cries out, verse 30, and beginning to sink, he cried out saying, Lord, save me. Even though he began to sink, he recognized the only one that could save him. He recognized that only Jesus could get him out of this situation. He didn't call to his disciples. It didn't say that he tried to get back on the boat. He calls to Jesus. He cries out to the Lord. Now, Peter, he does sink. You could call this a failure. Jesus spoke to Peter. He had enough faith to begin walking on the water. But once he started focusing on the storm, how boisterous it was, it was afraid. He was afraid. He began to sink. He failed the test. Did he fail the test? See, just because he sank doesn't mean that he failed. Just because he fell, it doesn't mean that he's unfaithful. Faithfulness is not the absence of failure. The Lord Sometimes he expects us to sink. He expects us to fall sometimes. Now, I'm not saying that biblically in the word, we see that we can live pure lives. We can live righteous lifestyles. The power of the Holy Spirit gives us the ability to do that. But there's also a reality that as human beings, sometimes we make mistakes. Sometimes we fail. Sometimes we sink. But it's what we do in the midst of our sinking that really makes the difference. See, Peter, he cried out to the Lord. In Proverbs chapter 24, verse 16, it says, Though a righteous man falls seven times, he gets back up. Wait, what does that mean? Righteous men falling? Well, what is righteousness really in the Bible? Righteousness is when you have faith in the Lord's righteousness and not your own righteousness. We're declared righteous by what? We're declared righteous by faith. So a righteous man falling seven times and getting back up is a testimony of his faith. See, just like Peter, the righteous man, he has faith that even when he falls, that the Lord is able to pick him back up and put him back on his feet. He didn't try to do it in his own strength. He didn't lean on the disciples. He didn't try to get back in the boat. He had faith in the Lord and the Lord is the one that intervenes. Look what what he does. Verse 31. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, Oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? I love this. Jesus, he doesn't hesitate. He doesn't wait. He doesn't say, Peter, you failed. I'm going to let you just like sink for a little while. I'll dive down and get you later. No, 
immediately, right after Peter cries out, the Lord reaches out his hand and he saves him. He saves him from his doubt. He saves him from his fears. He saves him literally from this storm. But then he rebukes him. Oh, you of little faith, why'd you doubt? See, Peter have had faith, but he didn't have as much faith as he could have. The Lord up to this point had given him, given him every reason to have full-fledged faith in him. But when Peter got distracted by his circumstances, he was fearful of them. And that fear diminished his faith somewhat. He began to sink. But we're going to see that the Lord, even though he sank, even though he doubted, the Lord is going to increase his faith through this storm. Look what happens in verse 32. And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. The storm stopped. The trial, it's over. It was only meant to teach them. It wasn't meant to harm them. See, the Lord knew that they were going to face this storm. He also knew when the storm was going to stop. Storms are temporary, but hopefully the lessons that we learn through the storms last forever. Because this is the truth for each and every one of us. We're all going to face storms in life. Jesus promised us in this world, you will have tribulation. You're going to go through hard times. He didn't just say, hey, everything's going to be easy. It's going to be great. Come to me and life will get easier. No, he said, actually, come to me and life's going to get harder. That's what he told us. Narrow is the way and difficult is the path that leads to life. And there are few who find it. We know through scripture that tribulation is inevitable. Storms, they're bound to come. But we also see through this story that they're only temporary. And we have an opportunity in every storm that we face to grasp a lesson. That Jesus is trying to teach us. See, we can allow the storms to push us away from the Lord, or we can allow storms to draw us closer to the Lord, recognizing that He's sovereign over it and He's trying to teach us something specific. We're gonna face storms either way. I would rather try to learn from them. Look what happens in verse 33. Then those who were in the boat came and worshiped Him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. From being afraid of the storm, thinking Jesus is a ghost, to having this faith that Jesus, you are. I know without a shadow of a doubt, you truly are the Son of God. Brings me to the fourth point. Storms reveal his nature and grow our faith. Storms reveal his nature and grow our faith. The very thing that brought the disciples to a place of doubt was the same thing that brought them to a greater measure of faith. See, sometimes the Lord will bring us through trying circumstances, allow us to come to that place of doubt so that in the end we'll recognize, man, I was a fool for doubting you. You had this whole thing under control the whole time. And I got so distracted by how bad my life was that I lost sight of how good you are. And that's what happens to the disciples. They see, oh my gosh, truly you are the son of God. Now they knew that he was the son of God previously, but we see that they still had some measure of doubt. 
Now they know for sure, you truly are the Son of God. He used this storm to reveal his true nature and to grow their faith. Verse 34, when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. Look what happens. They crossed over. No matter how hard this storm got, no matter how difficult it was, Jesus fulfilled his word. He said, it says immediately they got in the boat because Jesus made them. And he said, go before me to get to the other side. Now we see they finally did get to the other side. Why? Because Jesus said it was going to happen. Which brings me to the fifth point. God's word outlasts storms. The storm ends, but God's word remains the same. God is faithful to fulfill his word even when we're brought to that place of doubt. Isaiah says it like this in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, sorry, verse 8. It says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. What is he saying? There's things in this life that are only temporary. Storms are one of them. Flowers another. But there's situations in our life that they only last so long. We can't, um, we, we can't rest in the consistency of our circumstances. We can only rest in the stability of God's word. It's not going to change. It's not going to be moved. It's not going to be altered. Jesus says it like this in Matthew chapter 24, verse 35. He says, heaven and earth will pass away with my words. Nope, never going to pass away. The things that I say, God's word, it's never going to pass. See, so many things in our lives are always changing. When you look at the world today, it's constantly changing. The different theories that develop over time period, the different opinions, the different political views, the different standards of morality or whether morality is even a thing or if it's something that's just in our DNA that we've made up. Well, God's word says that, no, he's placed morality in our hearts. He put that in us. And that's just one example. But as this world is constantly changing, eventually fading God's word, it's not going to change. It's always going to remain the same. We can rest on that. So many things changing in our lives all the time. It's good to have one thing that we know that won't change. I can read the word. It ain't, it's not like I'm going to open this one day and it's going to be different. And the things that he said in the past, he's fulfilled. And other things he said in the past, he's going to fulfill. But the word of God, it stands forever. Verse 35, it says, And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent out into all that surrounding region, brought to him all who were sick. Come on. Jesus, supposedly going to take the disciples on a vacation in the last chapter, now he just meets them in this storm. Don't you think he's had enough already? No. He looks on lost people with a heart of compassion. We talked about that last week. He looks on them as if they're sheep not having a shepherd. He's intimately involved in each one of their lives. He wants to heal them of their sicknesses. So he continues, despite how busy he is, despite how weary he is, he engages in ministry. Verse 36, 
and begged him that they might only touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched it were made perfectly well. This is interesting. The people that touched the hem of Jesus's garment were made well. Well, was it the hem that healed him? No, it's Jesus that healed them. We see another uh, similar passages with Peter's shadow. We also see um, Paul's cloak in some of his garments that it's not these specific things that are healing the people. Anybody have like a lucky rabbit's foot thing? What is that about? Really? How is that going to do anything? <laughs> I used to have one when I was a kid. I don't know why. So it never did anything for me. <laughs> it's not the him that heals them. The him is an opportunity for them to express their faith. It's Jesus He's the one doing the healing. Same thing with Paul and Peter. It's Jesus. He's the one that heals. The hymn was just an opportunity for them to say, I have faith in Jesus. This is a way for me to act in faith. Because the Bible says that faith without works is dead. Meaning that the Bible, the faith the Bible teaches, is not a faith of just, uh, I believe, like I believe in... Um, mermaids it's no no it's a it's a faith that looks like something it's a faith that has substance if i say that i believe in jesus it changes the way that i live my life not that i'm perfect but i'm pursuing intimacy with him and through that intimacy he changes things in my heart he leads me in the way of righteousness so this him it's just an opportunity to express faith now just as the hymn was an object of faith, for us, Jesus is the object of faith. And I love how he ends this little section with, with healing and with faith. After he just walked the disciples through a storm where they lost focus, they doubted. Jesus, I think he's trying to teach us something very important that regardless of the hardship that we find in this life, regardless of how difficultly difficult our circumstances get, whether we just lost a loved one or whether we're battling with a terminal illness or whether things just aren't going our way, we lost our job, there's all these things happening. It's like, God, I feel like you're against me. I feel like you're out to get me. It's not true. The Lord, he desperately loves those who are his and he's not out to get you. If he was out to get you, none of us would be here, okay? You'd get us if you wanted to get us. <laughs> he's trying to teach us. We're his children. He loves us. He's trying to grow us. So even when circumstances are trying, we can still put our faith in Jesus. We can still focus on him. We can still look to him knowing that he's a good God. He's a loving God. He means well for his children, even when our circumstances lead us to a place of doubt. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this text, God. Storms in life, um, they're not fun. Lord, they're, they're, they're hard. And yet you know that. 
Lord, and, and sometimes even when we're walking in obedience, you lead us right into storms, not because you're mad at us or you're out to get us, but you're trying to, to produce something in us. You're trying to change us. Lord, I pray that you would give us each the faith to endure, not just through the good times, but the hard times too, that we could look to you and recognize not only are you in control, but you love us and you're going to use everything in our lives to, to grow us because of that love for us. Jesus, so I pray, Lord, as we enter into communion, that you would bless this time, Lord, that we would engage with you, that we would truly commune with you. In your name, amen.